Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today, it is time for us to finish our visit to Van Diemen's Land and Port Arthur Prison. Before we get started, I've got a lovely listener review from Can't Play Pool, UK, five star. Quote, I love this podcast. The host has a lovely soft voice and presents the story with humour, respect and facts. As a bit of a newfound Victoriophile, is that a thing? Listening to this show in chronological order has filmed many a gap. Thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. The episodes on Colonial Australia I have really liked, as I'm always interested in that part of British and colonial history. End quote. Well, Victoriophile is now officially a thing as far as I'm concerned. Before we get going, I'd like to play a couple of promo clips for two other lovely podcasts who did the Intelligent Speech Conference panel with me. Pontifacts with Brie and Fry and The History of Sex with BT Newberg. Check them out and show the indie podcast community some love and support in the corporate media age. Hello, I'm Fry. And I'm Brie from Pontifacts, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we explore the life of a single pope and contextualize their papacy in world history. And then we rate them based on the success of their papacy, how scandalous they were, their impact on the secular world, what their face looked like, and more. They may even pick up a new patron sainthood on the way. In the end, our most impactful papal bull-worthy popes will battle it out for the keys to the pearly gates and to be the popiest pope who ever poped. You can find Pontifex at pontifex.podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And on the Agora Podcast Network. I am BT Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. The History of Sex. Now, to prison with us. Prisoners were kept under strict surveillance at all times due to the special design of the Port Arthur Prison in Van Diemen's Land. Like all prisons, it was designed not just to punish, but to provide society with an institution that could change the personality of those societies that deemed unacceptable to a personality that society liked better. Port Arthur Prison was created at a time when the Victorian penal system was starting to undergo a process of change and reform. It was called a panopticon, proposed 
by the utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham. It was designed on a hub-and-spoke model so that the guards could always see the prisoners. It was meant to give inmates time to reflect on their crimes, to break away from criminal influences and associations, and to learn skills for rehabilitation. The theory was that by following strict rules at all times, being law-abiding would become second nature to them when they were released. Each inmate was forced to be silent at all times, to make them think about the rules and to self-reflect. They were given hoods so they couldn't see other prisoners. They were moved around by guards, and if one prisoner was walking down a corridor towards another, then the guards would make them face the wall so they couldn't see the other inmate pass. They were kept in isolation cells. Each cell had an airlock-style door, so the prisoners couldn't even see the guard when food or clothes were being passed in. Exercise was done in entirely separate mini-yards with high walls. Talking or rule-breaking was punished with the lash. Even church services didn't bring opportunities for human interaction. Inmates were forced to stand in small boxes and look directly ahead at the priest. Many prisoners went raving mad or developed deep depression. Isolation is one of the harshest of punishments as it is intensely psychologically damaging. Yet this was one of the great leaps in criminal justice. Society was beginning to separate the insane from the criminal in more instances. Public spectacle was being changed to attempts to reform prisoners by using institutions. The silent system originated in Philadelphia and was seen as a groundbreaking American prison built as a panopticon and implementing the silent system. Instead of public whippings, brutal torture or rampant executions, a new model system was being created that put the reform of the prisoner front and centre. Yet despite its triumphant vision, it was quickly seen to have unforeseen consequences. This new kind of prison was mentally destroying prisoners in droves. Charles Dickens visited Philadelphia in 1842 and was enraged by what he saw. His horror drips from his pen in paragraph after paragraph. For instance, quote, The system here is rigid, strict and hopeless solitary confinement. Over the head and face of every prisoner who comes into the melancholy house, a black hood is drawn, and in this dark shroud he is led to the cell, from which he never comes forth again, until his whole term of imprisonment has expired. He is a man buried alive, dead to everything, but torturing anxieties, horrible despair. End quote. A psychiatrist, Dr. Gracian, has studied the issue in great detail and been involved in a lot of court cases on it in an excellent paper in 2006 that covered both the 19th century and the modern system. He said, quote, The results were in fact catastrophic. The incidence of mental disturbances amongst prisoners so detained and the severity of such disturbances was so great that the system fell into disfavour and was ultimately abandoned. During this process, a major body of clinical literature developed, 
which documented psychiatric disturbances created by such stringent conditions of confinement. The paradigmatic psychiatric disturbance was an agitated, confusional state, which in more severe cases had the characteristics of a florid delirium characterised by severe confusional, paranoid and hallucinatory features and also by intense agitation, random, impulsive, often self-directed violence. Such disturbances were often observed in individuals who had no prior history of any mental illness. In addition, solitary confinement often resulted in severe exacerbation of a previously existing mental condition, even among inmates who did not develop overt psychiatric illness as a result of solitary confinement, such confinement almost inevitably imposed significant psychological pain during the period of isolated confinement and often significantly impaired the inmate's capacity to adapt successfully to the broader prison environment. It is both tragic and highly disturbing lessons of the 19th century experience with solitary confinement are today being so completely ignored by those responsible for addressing the housing and mental health needs in the prison setting. For indeed, the psychiatric harm caused by solitary confinement had become exceedingly apparent well over 100 years ago. End quote. Even during the 19th century, criticism of the silent system grew. Evidence mounted up that it actually created mental health problems and even psychosis. This higher statistical rate of mental health breakdown remained even when other factors such as alcoholism and personality disorders were accounted for. Indeed, you might notice that this is remarkably similar to methods of torture used on detainees in Guantanamo Bay. Things don't always get any better on release either. Again, according to Dr. Grassian, quote, the restriction of environmental stimulation and social isolation associated with confinement in solitary are strikingly toxic to mental functioning, a stuporous condition associated with perceptual and cognitive impairment and affective disturbances. In more severe cases, inmates so confined have developed florid delirium, a confusional psychosis with intense agitation, fearfulness and disorganisation. But even those inmates who are more psychologically resilient inevitably suffer severe psychological pain as a result of such confinement, especially when the confinement is prolonged and especially when the individual experiences this confinement as being the product of an arbitrary exercise of power and intimidation. Moreover, the harm caused by such confinement may result in prolonged or permanent psychiatric disability, including impairments which may seriously reduce the inmate's capacity to reintegrate into the broader community upon release from prison, end quote. If you think that's bad, especially in the United States, imagine how British convicts felt transported to a prison like that. How tormenting must it have felt to know you were truly hopeless and helpless. No law, no lawyers, no letters, not a human voice except the occasional guard. Outside was a landscape of beauty and danger. 
you couldn't even comfort yourself by singing. Unlike Philadelphia, the only surroundings were the hellscape of Van Diemen's Land. So no visiting charities or running water. At least an American prisoner could hold on to the hope. There was hope. A release day back into society. For the prisoner in Port Arthur, release just meant being turned loose into Van Diemen's Land. Some desperate prisoners tried to escape anyway. One named George Billy Hunter, dressed as a kangaroo, in a kangaroo pelt to try to get out, only for the desperately hungry guards to shoot him for food. He surrendered and was given 150 lashes of the whip. I've not found the original sources, but some uh, historians indicate that some inmates committed murder so they would get hung to be put out of their misery. Since most prisoners were illiterate and access to writing materials rare, there are very few first-hand accounts of prison life in Port Arthur on a day-to-day basis. It has often been said that a society is judged by how well it treats the weakest and most vulnerable. Prisoners are, ironically, extremely vulnerable. They are at the complete mercy and control of the state. In the case of Port Arthur, it was a system of cruelty that isn't easy to imagine, but it was actually supposed to be a humane way of rehabilitation. It is ironic that by introducing what seemed to be a forward-thinking, humane system, the Victorians in Van Diemen's land were creating a hell within a hell. Then there's the problem of prisoners who are already mentally ill. Prisons are not ideal for treating mental illness, and the prison illness itself, as you heard, can cause significant mental illness on top. Crime and mental illness often go hand in hand. Individuals with complex health needs can end up in situations that expose them to crime or draw them in. This can be amplified by growing up in broken or abusive homes. Even today, treating the mentally ill in the criminal justice system is difficult and typically an afterthought. Perhaps at best with heavy medication and suicide watches, coupled with underfunded counselling services, the police in many countries routinely fail in their dealings with the mentally ill. For the Victorians, mental illness was highly stigmatised, and if a Victorian prison sounded terrifying, to fall into the early Victorian asylum system was to expect barbarity. In Port Arthur, there was an asylum built in the 1860s, followed by a pauper's mess to feed those ex-convicts who couldn't reintegrate into colonial society. For many, the surrounding farm system was used as a kind of probation service. When we look back on this in summary, we can see the prison as a complex ecosystem with its own social, political, geographical and philosophical structures. Some might seem strikingly like our own, but in other respects, wholly alien. On its own terms, as the Victorians might have viewed it, Port Arthur provided a secure prison with a system for housing convicts, a degree of support for the vulnerable, a strategy for rehabilitation, and it achieved striking economic success. A modern person might be critical of a number of elements, but hopefully you are beginning to see why its reputation is sometimes embellished by popular articles, trumpeting it as the world's worst prison, when the reality was more complex and nuanced. There was much to criticise, 
and, like almost all prisons, it was unpleasant by design. In Van Diemen's land, there were legends of cannibalism and escaped convicts becoming bush rangers, like the most desperate of outlaws in the Old West. This is difficult for us to analyse, since cultural history has changed how the convicts were viewed. At times, the Victorians considered convict ancestors shameful. Later generations, sometimes gone the other way, and treated having a convict ancestor as a source of pride. Like an American, being able to trace an ancestor to the Mayflower. Those are cultural hang-ups to which modern people are projecting. If you want to learn more about the Bushranger as a cultural figure, it is a fascinating topic for study. You might want to start with the Australian Histories podcast by Jenny, where she spent 18 episodes on the life of Ned Kelly, the corrupt police, the murders, the outbreak, the armour, and the famous siege and the trial. It's really interesting stuff. I love her show and I strongly recommend it. At the time, many of the settlers in Van Diemen's land were protesting against transportation, linking it to the bush rangers and their dangers to them, while state political prisoners like Irish revolutionary William O'Brien were often a PR nightmare for the colonial authorities. He was charged with treason and given transportation as a sentence, which he objected to on the basis that the only legal sentences for treason were death or a pardon. As the court wasn't willing to hang him, he demanded a pardon. Many lawyers argued that convicts were sentenced to transportation, not to prison, so therefore they could not be imprisoned on arrival. The transportation itself was the punishment, so prison would be an extrajudicial act. The British government hardly wanted to pardon a leading revolutionary, so it was Van Diemen's land for William O'Brien. Once there, the press was highly sympathetic. The anti-transportation movement adopted him as a symbol, and he was pressed to accept a ticket of leave for pardon. O'Brien ended up excused the hard labour or punishments and avoided Port Arthur Prison. He was given solitary confinement in his own cottage, drawing an officer's pay. Time dragged badly for him, and he regarded Port Arthur as a morose, brooding landscape, devoid of hope and mostly wild, with not enough food. O'Brien was sick of his period of solitary confinement in his cottage, with only a small garden to eke out extra food, bare walls, and a bed with rags for blankets. As a political prisoner, he became a press-appointed martyr. So an exasperated governor got O'Brien to accept a ticket of leave to get him out of the colony altogether. The governor was pleased to have at least dodged the anti-transportation lobby for a short while. There was also the problem of institutionalisation. Prisoners spent years in the most repetitive routines imaginable. When a convict arrived at Port Arthur Prison, they were graded according to the prison official's view of their moral worth. The convict was then assigned better or worse conditions, depending on the view taken. Good conduct could eventually lead to being assigned to a convict workstation or a period of probation and happy times sawing logs in the saw pits. Those that failed to demonstrate moral worth were pushed into the silent system. 
which reinforced the process of institutionalism. Of course, for the truly incorrigible, well, there was always that old imperial standby used by every empire since time immemorial, sending the worst prisoners down the mines. Months of labour underground from dawn till dusk would be incredibly damaging to the health. An additional problem is that the prisoner in confinement loses a lot of what is considered worthwhile in human life. Loss of loving touch, the opportunity to form relationships, the chance to set long-term goals and then self-actualize. A short sentence might give a chance to train in a long-coveted skill, but longer sentences make education seem a pointless waste of time. This exacerbates the problem that a lot of prisoners had very basic educations to start with. This in turn breaks down the individual and ironically makes rehabilitation on release harder. It also increases the risk of depression and recidivism. Ironically, harsh prison has often been shown to be ineffective at turning bad people into good, but excellent at pushing minor criminals far deeper into more evil crimes. This in turn creates a dependency between the inmate and the system that detains them. That's before you get to the obvious point that in the early Victorian era, a prison at least had a roof and food, so could be better than starving to death in a gutter or ditch by the road. Balanced against this, some studies of modern British prisons over decades show that the periods of greatest stress are at the time of initial imprisonment and during the early years. Uniforms helped with institutionalisation and they sharply distinguished the prisoner from the free population, making escape even harder. But they also replaced the often filthy rags of the new inmates. Some prisoners arrived in rags from the streets, so full of lice and human waste, that they were immediately burnt as health hazards. Prison doctors did exist, and they attempted to keep prison populations healthy, as did most ship's doctors during transportation, meaning convicts might have access to medical treatment far beyond their previous means, adding to the benefits of prison. Even in the 19th century, the danger of institutionalisation was known, as Emily Dickinson set out in her famous poem, quote, A prison gets to be a friend, between its ponderous face and ours, a kinship express, and in its narrow eyes. We come to look with gratitude for the appointed beam, it deal us, stated as our food, and hungered for the same. We learn to know the planks that answer to our feet. So miserable a sound at first, nor ever now so sweet, as plushing in the pools, where memory was a boy, but a demure circuit, a geometric joy, posture of the key, that interrupt the day, to our endeavour, not so real, the check of liberty, as this phantasm steel, whose features day and night, are present to us as our own, and as escapeless, quite, the narrow round, the stint, the slow exchange of hope, for something passiver, content, too steep for looking up, the liberty we knew, avoided like a dream, too wide, any night but heaven, if that indeed redeem, end quote. 
You might also think that the Victorians weren't interested in the tricky issue of post-sentence resettlement. After all, on the day of release, the prisoner can't work and probably won't be able to for some time. Unless you want them to immediately have to start stealing food, you have to think about what to do with them. Also, don't forget, a lot of people don't actually like help or resent it as a form of unwelcome charity, which complicates the issue. One notable example of Victorian post-prison settlement is Sarah Martin. She was a dedicated philanthropist who frequently visited Great Yarmouth Borough Jail where she helped ex-prisoners find work and support. Inspector Captain Williams was so impressed with her that he recommended creating discharge prisoner associations based on her model. One field of prison studies has a raging debate about the impact and value of prison, so questions around rehabilitation are still contested. The convict and ex-convict still had a lot of use. Despite the expense of running the prison, they were constantly pushed to the margins of newly settled colonial lands. They were forced to clear these areas, acting as disposable pioneers, whilst also being kept well away from the growing towns, where people assumed ex-convicts would flock to the drinking halls, prostitutes, and followed by an inevitable fall back into crime. Some historians like Robson have argued that the use of convicts mixed with the frontier labouring class was part of a longer-term goal for the creation of a peasant class tied to the land, ruled by a British-style gentry with a limited technical class instead of the prosperous middle classes on the British homeland. Today's prisons are very different. The silent system is gone, Heavy chain gangs cutting virgin forest for the Royal Navy are things of the distant part. It might be easy to assume that the world of the Victorian prison is a long, distant relic of the past. Yet some things remain the same. Governments still overcriminalise society to film prisons to make money. Much of the modern war on drugs feeds not only the profits of the criminal cartels, but also lines the pockets of shareholders of private prisons, where people incarcerated for minor or drug-related crimes labour for a pittance, with refusal to work a violation of the rules. Those rules are frequently criticised as arbitrary and are selectively enforced, whilst cultures of violence, rape and drugs flourish. The experience of Dominique Morgan, for example, would be recognisable to many a Victorian criminal. She was interviewed by NPR. Quote, Dominique is a musician, author and activist from Omaha, Nebraska. Growing up, they had a pretty tumultuous relationship with their family. Morgan, I was homeless from the age of about 17 to 18 and I grew up in kind of in group homes and having some issues there and got into a really abusive relationship and was on the streets and engaging in what we call survival crimes, like stealing cars to sleep in, writing checks for food and clothes. And I, after a summer of engaging in this behaviour, I had accumulated nearly 30 felony charges. Garcia. Dominique ended up pleading guilty to three counts of theft and forgery, 
and they were sentenced to 8 to 16 years. And it was at the Omaha Correctional Centre they were hired for their first job, working in the prison kitchens. Morgan. My day would start at 4am. I would go into the kitchen. I would make the breakfast for 1,200 men. I would work lunch. I would work dinner. And I'd make $2.25 a day. End quote. Later in the interview, she says, quote, Garcia. And in addition to doing the work maintaining and operating the prison itself, incarcerated people often contracted to work for outside agencies or even private companies. Morgan, they do everything from building the furniture in any state office to doing the laundry for the university. There's actually an incarcerated person in Nebraska who works at the governor's mansion, literally cleans the governor's mansion, Raphaean. Dominique eventually got a job working for a company called Oriental Trading. Morgan, if you've ever been to, like, an office party, the tablecloth came from Oriental Trading Company. So we were doing everything from, like, cutting plastic for tablecloths to packaging. And I think at that time, I was making, like, 37 cents an hour, quote. Convict labour is hugely controversial. Many claim it amounts to no less than legal slavery. It is surprising just how many companies benefit from this, from Victoria's Secret to weapons manufacturers. Many large Western companies use prison labour, from places like Thailand, where women in prison make luxury underwear. Whilst according to the New York Times, quote, the Bureau of Prisons operates a programme known as Federal Prison Industries that pays immense roughly 90 cents an hour to produce mattresses, eyeglasses, road signs, body armour and other products for government agencies, earning 500 million in sales in 2016, end quote. Suddenly, Victorian prison labour doesn't look so unique and shocking, does it? After all, if you think US and British prison conditions are bad, you should see what happens in, say, China or Brazil. I should again remind you of a point I've made before. It is the deprivation of liberty that is supposed to be the punishment for the crime, not additional punishments once detained or poor conditions. It is just that a lot of constitutions ignore that distinction, and people conflate poor treatment of prisoners with being part of the legitimate sentence. In reality, such extra conditions should be set as part of the sentence for the crime. Of course, not all prison work schemes are exploitative, as some companies were founded to provide low-skilled prisoners with education and work training that is transferable on release. The concept of gaining skills and earning a small wage is supposed to be morally improving and practical. Very Victorian indeed. When you consider that refusal to work can lead to solitary confinement or in some prisons execution under some circumstances, especially in China, you have to ask what is the difference between a Roman house slave bowing and saying yes, Dominus, and a convict bowing their head and saying yes, sir. Other critics point out that it allows large private companies to undercut competitors by using sweatshop labour, distorting the economy and dragging down wages in legitimate businesses. In America, much of this can be traced back 
to the substitution of slavery with prison labourers in the post-Civil War period, who, to no one's surprise, happened to be black. You might notice some photos of black prisoners labouring in fields today, guarded by armed white officers on horses overseeing their labour, which have some uncomfortable resonances with photographs of American slavery. Not that the modern British don't have problems with modern prisons, including overcrowding of Victorian-built prisons, kept in service long after they needed replacing, plus threadbare rehabilitation programmes, endemic violence, and dubious private sector takeovers. Other prisons around the world are lethally dangerous places, like those in Brazil, Russia and so on, while some Chinese prisons appear to be no more than covers for genocide camps. I'm pointing all this out to you so you aren't tempted to think the Victorians were unique or evil in what they were doing to prisoners, whilst we are enlightened and have developed beyond these things. The technology might have changed the instruments, but the music remains the same. We live in a flawed world, filmed with just as much evil as the Victorians did, and like them, it often flows from the best of intentions, with dollops of greed, narrow-mindedness and laziness added to the mix. Much of the language in the modern system would be instantly recognisable to many Victorians familiar with the criminal justice system. It is not unknown for modern prison governors to talk of deviance, sin and redemption, actively using Victorian Christian language. How much Victorian thinking have we simply carried forward? The Victorians felt convicts owed the state labour to offset the expense of their upkeep. And there was no real racial dimension like that associated with the prison labour in the American South. But another unfortunate reality of Australia and Tasmania in the Victorian era is that European settlement was only possible with the extensive use of forced convict labour. It also needed convict and ex-convict settlement to increase the population and to work the dangerous hinterlands of the settlements or the wildlands beyond. If prisoners dropped like flies, well, they were viewed as completely disposable. In total, over 162,000 prisoners were boated to the penal colonies. The graveyard at Port Arthur Prison alone contains over 1,600 graves. Its reputation was infamous throughout the empire. Later generations of 19th and 20th century white Australians often glossed over or outright denied any convict ancestry. A convict in the family background was a mark of shame. Later, the pendulum has swung back, with some modern white Australians looking back to First Fleet convict ancestors as a mark of pride and even superiority. After all, Despite being the most rejected dregs of British society, they had been tough enough to survive at the ends of the earth and somehow have families. Modern pop culture seems to be going through one of its swings of reverence for the outcast, the criminal and the pirate. Figures like wild William Buckley, who escaped Port Arthur and lived with an indigenous tribe, or Martin Cash, a genuinely hard man beneath his soft face, who escaped Van Diemen's land twice and turned bush ranger 
Both these are far more appealing to a modern audience than the Victorian ideals of honest sailors, the heroic officer, the paladin, which are no longer in fashion in the modern age of deconstruction and moral relativism. To understand, if not condone, the mental worldview of the Victorians for their convicts, we have to see them from the older, harsher point of view that the Victorians often did, and to understand that convicts were seen not just as social failures, but also morally defective, lacking personal accountability, and having broken the laws of God, thereby needing salvation of the soul, as well as retraining of the mind. So the strange melting pot of convict backgrounds came together. Thieves mingled with Scots, who were trying to support the French Revolution, along with Irish Fenians, Royal Naval Mutineers, Cattle Rustlers, Prostitutes, Forgers, Murderers, The Insane, Agricultural Labourers, who had deliberately damaged factories in wage and employment protests. These outcasts were as varied as the society they had been expelled from. Yet despite the Victorian view, the convicts did labour and cleared the land. The impact on the indigenous peoples was immense too. A strange clash occurred between two groups of peoples, both at the mercy of the mighty empire that was being built. Welcome or not, that empire would open up vast agricultural and mining fields, then roll out railways, electricity and sanitation, hugely controversial and often racist education systems followed, yet by giving the continent such a strong imperial and institutional beginnings, it was almost guaranteed that the Australias would inevitably become independent one day. For Hannah, the girl that we started this series with, prosperous farms, telegraphs and steamships were in an undreamed of future. She appears at once to have lost all power and agency since she was forced to Van Damon's land, but then again she had chosen to commit the crimes that led her there. She was going to benefit in a small way from the immense imperial power as the British attempted to turn their tiny foothold into a proper colony and part of empire. For that, they needed the land to become productive and able to trade, hopefully in food. This would attract more settlers and hopefully increase the birth rate, decreasing reliance on the convicts. At least she didn't end up in Port Arthur prison itself. Later Victorian society in Van Diemen's land was keen to draw a veil over what it considered its embarrassing convict past. The colony was renamed Tasmania. The prison, long closed in the 1870s, was renamed Carnarvon, and ownership transferred from the British Imperial Government to the Tasmanian state, who were not keen on remembering the 12,000-odd convicts who had passed through it. The site was sold off for salvage and redevelopment. Tourism was deemed the future. And by the 1890s, the Tasmanian Tourist Association was heavily promoting the grand scenery of the peninsula, but seemed to suffer a curious amnesia about the prison past, especially in its advertising leaflets. Besides the treatment of prisoners, what has really stood out during my research for this episode was the enduring loneliness and sheer psychological isolation that broke people more effectively than the beatings or the work. 
A strange world where even the stars were wrong and the seasons different. To live in an alien land at the mercy of the governors, often shackled to strangers, watching other powerless men live and die beside you. To feel utterly at the mercy of an uncaring fate. This is what truly gave Port Arthur and Van Diemen's Land their fearsome reputations. What about Hannah, the convict woman we started our journey to the Australian colonies with? Did she survive? Reform? Even prosper? Did she build a new identity for herself? I'm not sure. I have seen her convict and transportation records. Tracking her afterwards gets much harder. There were two Hannah Herberts I found in the records in the colony. I think our Hannah Herbert lived, married a man called Richard Law, and had a child called Thomas William Law. But if not, she is the one who died of fever and had a simple grave. I don't know which is which. The answer is in her stars, as to whatever the outcome of the great journey she made was. She was one of the millions in the great demographic earthquake of the Victorian Empire when people across the world became mixed and travelled from land to land, willingly or not. Part of the endless jumbling of the human species and final proof of the fact that we are all from somewhere else, all united in the great human chain of history. We've spent quite a bit of time in the early colonies in the Australias. We've seen why the British got the Australias, their various motives and the development of Van Diemen's Land and its notorious prison. Honestly, I could spend years on this topic, but I think it is actually time we moved on. We've seen the impact of empire from the view of the white colonial settlement. In so many ways, you can see how ramshackle the empire was when Victoria ascended the throne in 1837. It is easy to assume the empire was simply new and well-organised, built on previous highly ordered structures. Instead, you can see that the Australian colonies were incredibly haphazard in a way. Around 1837, they were a tiny number of Europeans clinging on and unsure of what they really were. As I've said before, when you look at the map of empire from the Victorian era, covered in pink, it is easy to think of it as a great unified territory. The reality was that much of that pink-covered area was where no one lived in any meaningful sense, and the British Empire in some spots amounted to little more than a small house with a flag, perhaps with a lonely Scotsman inside, writing reports on the rate of snowfall in the mountain passes. In others, like the Australias, was the small colony, supported by huge gangs of convicts doing the forced labour for a tiny ruling elite. Our next stop covering the Imperial Earthquake will be to look at another part of this settler empire. We will briefly turn to South Africa in the 1830s and 1840s and see how the British established the tiniest of fingerholds on the great continent that would be indelibly linked to empire and would eventually lead to the scrabble for Africa, the end of the Victorian era. Join me next time. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. 
Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com and the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.